0: Ready? Good morning. Hello. Welcome. Just like church and school, everybody sits to the back and sort of fills in. Is that how it goes? I see. Uh, Welcome to day two um, of the American Association for State and Local History annual meeting. We hope that you guys have had a good morning and uh, a good day yesterday Here, hearing great things. And I just want to say on behalf of ASLH, the fact that rooms are full and standing room only means a lot to us in a good way. We like the fact that, that, that sessions are popular and things. So I know it's inconvenient sometimes, but we like the fact that we have so much going on that people are excited about it. And the person most responsible for the program that, that is in the book and put together is standing to my left, your right, uh, I'll introduce Aaron Carlson-Mass, who's the program chair of this meeting. Aaron.
1: Thank you, Bob. Good morning, everyone. Um, that was very nice of you to say, Bob. But um, one thing that I found is very true about this is that it really is a collaborative effort. There are so many people that make this meeting happen. Starting with everyone who submitted a proposal, you made our jobs on the program com- committee very difficult because there were so many amazing sessions to choose from this year, but we just couldn't take them all. Bob, thank you and the rest of the AASLH staff and council. I also want to thank Andrea Kyer, who was the host committee chair. It was a pleasure to work with you, Andrea, and the rest of the host committee. It was also an honor and a privilege to work with the whole program committee, a group so committed they agreed to travel here in January. and <laughs> The Monday after our weekend of meetings, um, all the schools were closed because the weather was so terrible. So if they close the schools in St. Paul, you know the weather's pretty bad. We truly feel that something special happens when we all come together. You leave here armed with great ideas, better solutions, and a stronger network of support. You return home renewed in your commitment to service and leadership through history. Today's keynote speaker, Embodies that spirit that we are greater than the sum of our parts. And it's my pleasure to introduce her today and hear her insights on global citizenship and community partnership and how we as history organizations can pair our rich historical resources with civic mindfulness to inform our contemporary lives. Marilyn Carlson Nelson is former chairman and CEO of Carlson, which includes such brands as Radisson Blue and Radisson Hotels country inns and suites, and Carlson Wagenly travel. More than 150,000 people work under the Carlson brands in over 160 countries. Forbes named Marilyn one of the world's 100 most powerful women, and US News and World Report recognized her as one of America's best leaders. She served as co-chair of the World Economic Forum and as a presidential appointee to the chair of the National Women's Business Council as well as the US Travel and Tourism Advisory Board. Marilyn serves on the boards of the UN Global Compact, the Committee Encouraging Corporate Philanthropy, and is past chair of the Mayo Clinic Board of Trustees. She is a former board member of ExxonMobil and the Kennedy Center for the Performing Arts. Marilyn teaches a class on corporate responsibility to MBA students at the Carlson School of Management at the University of Minnesota, and is currently working with the Minnesota Historical Society on her oral history for its business archives. She is also the author of the best selling book, How We Lead Matters Reflections on a Life of Leadership. Please join me in welcoming Marilyn Carlson Nelson.
2: It's always fun to hear your resume, because none of your failures are recounted. (laughs) That wasn't really my line. That was Moss Hart. But it's such a great line, because you listen, and it's as if you never failed at anything. Well, you know all those modest Minnesotans that Garrison Keillor always writes about? Well, you can set them aside this morning, because I'm not one of them. I'm an unabashed fan of this state, the state in which I was born and raised a family and spent my entire career. I'm so proud of Minnesota's priorities in education, in arts, in health, and well-being. And I love that you, the members of the American Association of State and Local Historians, are meeting right here in my hometowns, so we can share all of this with you. But while Minnesota may have the nation's highest graduation rates, the most theater seats per capita outside of New York, one of the nation's most fit populations, and iconic organizations like the Mayo Clinic, the University of Minnesota, Medtronic, General Mills, 3M, beautiful parks, lakes, and rivers, I have a confession. I don't think I ever really fully appreciated how our deep respect for the preservation and interpretation and communication of history has actually provided the foundations for the kind of community that we are. Knowing that what you do informs not only the development of our communities, but of our nation, indeed our world, I am truly thankful that you are here, that you are sharing your expertise and experiences with your Minnesota colleagues and I sincerely hope that the partnerships and the friendships that you make here are going to result in many, many years of productive collaboration. So in preparation for your visit, I had the great privilege of being hosted by Steve Elliott on my very first back-of-the-house tour of the Minnesota History Center. I've long known that Minnesota is home to one of the leading historical societies in the country, but until that tour I had not focused on the depth and breadth of the collection and the expertise of the staff. I know that over the past couple of days, you too have been exploring the marvelous marvels of our Minnesota History Center. So I hope that you can appreciate the kind of admiration that I had when I observed a very a, a brilliant, talented preservationist who is painstakingly bathing the stained pages of a priceless medical textbook from the library of Owen Wangenstein. My husband is a surgeon. Owen was one of the early heart pioneers, one, an extraordinary part of our personal history. And here was someone preserving a piece from his library. You can imagine also my delight at seeing the first published cartoon of Charles Schultz and my sentimentality as I wandered through the toy exhibit recalling the Tonka trucks, the troll dolls, the Barbie houses that were so beloved to my three girls. Too bad I wasn't wise enough to save a few of those treasures. (laughs) I have to tell you, it was with a deep sense of reverence when we opened an archival drawer and it revealed a pair of overalls of a Scandinavian farmer from the late 1800s that caused me to reflect on the eloquence of these seemingly simple everyday materials. These overalls were held together with so many patches of mismatched cloth, there was barely any fabric visible, but they spoke volumes. I felt a sense of gratitude. I felt indebted to the determined spirit and the hard work of that individual and therefore of the pioneers and the immigrants. In a sense, in a real sense, we're all immigrants, aren't we? We're sojourners in time. So life is one that begins on a journey into the unknown. Each life, regardless of privilege or position, has hardships, heartbreaks, and many, many joys. Each life contributes to our collective history. It is this journey that I'd like to explore with you today in a very personal way. Now you might be saying to yourself, what does a global CEO have in common with a full room full of historians? actually was an economist. I would suggest more than you probably think. For example, like many of you as the leader of an organization, I have answered to multiple stakeholders: employees, customers, partners, boards of directors, share owners, or, in your parlance, donors. I know firsthand it's not easy to balance these constituencies that put the organization's long-term well-being first, its sustainability. I know well the tension between vision and budget, but as someone once said about being a CEO, if you can't ride two horses at the same time, maybe you should get out of the circus. (laughs) So like you, I have struggled to make our services relevant. Like you, I concern myself with creating meaningful experiences for my guests. Like you, I strive to optimize social networking. Like you, I've worked to find ways to make our history, our company's history, 75 years of history, real and relevant and instructive to those who shape the future. I have a favorite Swedish poet, Carl Sandburg. And he described the importance of this connection between the past and the future in this way. Carl Sandburg said, it cost to build this nation. To do so took men and women who were willing to throw in all they had, and they did that. And now it's time to tell those who are going to shape the future what the present time means. Because if a civilization perishes, there's always one thing in common. They forgot where they came from and the struggles further on. He couldn't have put it better, could he? The role that history, knowing where we came from, you can almost sense the invisible hand of the historian at work in Sandberg's poem. Preserving the memories, describing the context, explaining why yesterday is relevant to today, and most important, why where we come from is relevant to tomorrow. Quote, We must tell those who are going to shape the future what the present time came from, the poet said. But is telling enough? Can we show them Can we connect them in ways so powerful that they will not forget where we came from and the struggles further on? Now, I myself had this kind of visceral, indelible experience earlier this summer when I was asked to speak on a panel in Normandy at the 70th anniversary of the D-Day invasion. As I walked Omaha Beach and gazed across the fields of White Crosses and Stars of David, I was so deeply moved at the vastness of the sacrifice. But it really wasn't until I entered the museum that I internalized the full weight of the event. To hear the stories, in some cases, the actual voices of the soldiers who lived through these battles, to see the uniforms, the boots, the armaments, The personal effects, the names and faces of those who had fallen, all of this engulfed me in the struggle. The words repeatedly inscribed on the monuments along the beach, commitment, courage, sacrifice, became like a a powerful directive. Do not forget the price of your freedoms, they shouted to me and I felt challenged, I asked myself, do I, do we, have this kind of courage, this kind of commitment, this kind of willingness to sacrifice? Do we appreciate our freedoms? Do we even remember where this time came from? Imagine my emotion... After feeling the sand beneath my feet on Omaha Beach and viewing those artifacts, as I turned to go back to my car, and I heard this plaintive sound, there was a young serviceman far down the cemetery playing taps, a totally sensual experience that I will never forget. It's clear that no one thing is instructive. Perhaps you've seen a quotation on the outside of our own famous Walker Art Center in Minneapolis, which reads bits and pieces making a semblance of a whole. It is these bits and pieces you so lovingly curate so creatively display and so meticulously weave together in narratives that reminds us that while we are confident that our time and our challenges are of course unique, we have only to look at history to be assured that others too in many cases have been similarly tested. I was intrigued recently to learn through my grandson who is attending Harvard that the college offers a course entitled Tangible Things, Discovering History Through Artworks, Artifacts, Scientific Specimens, and Stuff Around You. Great course. The course description goes on to say that people make history through the things they gather, create, collect, exhibit, exchange, throw away, or ignore. Reading about the, quote, tangibles at the university, which were described in this course description, I actually had to laugh because they talked about, very glowingly, about the fact the Harvard Museum contains a Mexican tortilla that's more than a century old. (laughs) Actually, I thought my family was the only one that kept stale food. (laughs) I should tell you that story. You see, my grandmother, my mother's mother, according to family lore, didn't bake bread because she was nervous to use yeast. The neighbors in their small town noted it, and they were gossiping about it. And sensing her discomfort, my grandfather, who was a traveling salesman, convinced the bakery owner of the reputed best bakery in his entire sales territory to give him her recipe. So Nellie set out to follow it precisely. Well, it turned out the recipe was for a full day's worth of sales in the bakery. So she and my grandpa had yeast rising all over the house. Years later, after my grandparents had passed away, we cleaned their home. And we found, in the top of the pantry, in the very back corner, a little tin... In it was a blackened, hardened, loaf-like object (laughs) and a note written in my grandpa's hand, which said, Nellie's first bread. (laughs) In that instance, my grandmother became so real to us, as well as my grandpa's love for her and pride in her success. It was that tin so lovingly tucked away, and the few words in his own hand on the yellowed paper that touched us so much, much more, and told us, actually, more than the dates on their gravestones. My family's oral history was made real when we could touch the tin and hold the original note in our hands. It seems that there's something deep inside of all of us that craves these connections, these items which embody experiences and take on meaning way beyond their material value. Stories made true, stories made real. From ancient days when we gathered around the fire to pass on experiences, values, and wisdom through the generations to modern days when we stroll through museums with our iPads as interpreters or our earphones and our children interact with history on their computers, there's always behind it the storyteller. The historians, in effect, the storytellers of our greater family, keep us tethered between the past and the present, helping us to see the patterns, the consequences, and the potentialities of our actions, showing us that others have dealt with seemingly insurmountable challenges in their time and giving us courage to do the same. This is an invaluable insight for anyone, but particularly for us as leaders. Each of us in this room is entrusted with the stewardship, perhaps of our organization, maybe a department, maybe a major project, or maybe a community initiative. It is my belief, my conviction, that every individual is called upon to be a leader every day, in our workplaces, our homes, our communities. And I also believe that how we lead matters, so much so that I chose that for the title of my book. Interestingly, it was an actually a an his- history question from another one of my grandchildren, Jamie, which inspired me to reflect on the importance of one's own history, our personal leadership, he asked me if I was alive during segregation he was in he was about twelve. to tell you the truth i didn 't know if he was referring to the Civil War or the civil rights era. But I took his question very seriously, and I suddenly realized that with our grandchildren, often they 've seen us at family events they 've seen us at standing on the sidelines of their various graduations and performances, and sports, athletic activities. But do they really know us? Do they know what we fought for? Do they know what we believed in? Do they know what we stood for? And so I decided when I was traveling back and forth with my colleague Deb Cundy to Asia to open some new countries for our business and coming home I was always too tired to do more work. So I started just finding little anecdotes that might that I could share with my grandchildren that were moments of insight to me about leaders, or great leaders, or moments when people stood up and inspired me. And then, actually, our executives asked if they could see it. I didn't know if I should do that. It was very, it's a very private. I had included lots of everything from stories about the family gerbils and how that tested me, to. Uh, stories about having had a, a cancer scare, so I, I really wasn't sure it should be shared and I sent it to what I thought was a good friend privately in New York and said look at this from your professional point of view, if this, if this became more public it, would it be, should I keep it for the family? And I said we'll just have a, a little between us if you say your family will love this, I'll get it that I should keep it pretty close Instead, he took it to McGraw-Hill and, <laughs> and I got a call saying, gee, can you send us six more stories and we'd like to publish it? So um, I, I wanted to pull things out and my husband said, uh-uh, either if it's good for your grandchildren, perhaps it's good for others, and if it's not, don't publish it. But you know, a lot has changed in the six years since I wrote the book. So already, in a way, it feels like a history book. But the fact is that at the core, the lessons that I wanted to teach were lessons about human rights, about caring, about personal accountability. And I hope that there will be timeless messages. I wanted my grandchildren to know that history is not a matter of looking in the rearview mirror. I wanted them to know that ultimately it's a matter of looking at ourselves in the mirror every day and realizing that our choices are making our history. So allow me to don the Mantle of storyteller for a couple minutes and share with you a couple of the experiences from my life. First, I'll begin with my grandfather on the other side of the family, the Swedish one, who loved to tell us about arriving in America from Sweden, holding his father's hand with nothing but the clothes on their back and a few belongings in a very small wooden trunk. As it was for most immigrants of that time, the small trunk held their belongings and also told a story. The contents of those containers speak of what the immigrants treasured most, what they thought would sustain them in the New World. Clothing, Bibles, tools, photos were common items. But equally important, was what they chose to leave behind. The great Swedish author, Wilhelm Moberg, describes these trunks in his series of books called The Immigrants. The books tell the true story of Carl and Katrina Nielsen and their children who left Sweden to eventually arrive in Minnesota with only their, quote, chest of essentials, as Moberg put it. By the way, just outside Twin Cities, On the Moberg Trail, you can find the cemetery where the Nielsen family actually is buried, and the rooming house where the author stayed in 1948 to do his research. This is how Moberg described the immigrant trunk. And I quote, The four oak walls of this chest, many of them were pine too, were for thousands of miles to enclose and protect their essentials. To these planks would be entrusted most of their belongings. The ancient clothes chest, which was about to pass into an altogether new and eventual epoch of its history, was given a new name for its old age. Through its new name, it was set apart from all its equal and from all other belongings. It was called the America's Chest. Housed at the Minnesota History Center, there are several America's chests. Like the dual face of Janus, the Roman god of beginnings and transitions, these trunks, these tangible items, represent both the sadness of loss and leaving and the hopefulness of their owners. This ornately painted truck Trunk is a Norwegian one. It was brought from Norway around 1842. You see the beautiful scrolls and the floral designs in the Scandinavian colors of blue, red, white, and yellow on the domed top and front. A plainer version of the America's chest is this Swedish trunk, made in 1776 and brought to St. Paul in 1882 by the donor's great-great-grandmother. And then there's one chest which holds great sentimental value for me. It is a replica of a Swedish immigrant's trunk given to me by my father at a ceremony in front of 5,000 employees, customers, suppliers, and partners when he named me as successor CEO at Carlson in 1998. For my father, the trunk served as a physical reminder of where our family had come from, of the hard work, the sacrifice, the values that had brought us to this day when he would entrust me with the stewardship of his life's work. The company that he started in 1938 with a borrowed $50. For me, as a new CEO, the trunk became a symbol of decisions that I would have to make. What would I take forward from the past and what would I have to leave behind? to carry our company into the future. So I think of it as Carlson's CEO chest. It's our company's, as that Harvard book says, tangible. So in this photo, you see my CEO successor on the occasion of my retirement when I symbolically handed down the trunk to him, reminding him that he too would need to pack his own chest which I could only hope would include the values that have sustained the company through the decades and the tools of innovation to propel us forward. But that would be for him to decide, just as it was for me when I began my journey as CEO. You see, in packing my trunk, I knew immediately that we needed to leave behind the past biases, particularly about diversity in the business environment, particularly as it applied to women and minorities. For many years before the company became international, my father had the luxury of being able to walk around and look people in the eyes, and for many years, guess what? They looked a lot like him. When I became CEO, we were on the verge of going global. It was a new world, yet in our headquarters company, there were only two women executives. It reminded me of the early 60s when I graduated from Smith College with a degree in international economics and no place to use it as a woman. I finally talked Payne Weber into hiring me, not as a registered representative because there weren't any women stockbrokers at the time, but as a junior analyst. And they made me sign my name MC Nelson because they said no one would buy stock from a woman. But many years later, when I told my daughters the story, they were flabbergasted. They couldn't understand why I didn't just quit. Why, I have to tell you, I was so happy to have that job, I would have called myself George. (laughs) But what my young daughters were missing at that time was the historical context, which didn't justify, but certainly did explain the environment in which these inequities existed. Now that they're older, they understand that all of this was before the passage of Titles 6, 7, 8, and 9, which provided the fairer treatment of women and minorities in all aspects of society. It was also before women were able to take out a loan in their own name without having their husband or their son or some other male sign for them but my way of striking a blow against the prejudices of the time was to stay on the job and do the best job i could and eventually mc nelson's stock recommendations were doing quite well while i was grateful to be the exception i was also clear to me that i was at that time participating in living history While others were marching in the street and burning their bras in protest of the unequal treatment of women, some also had to go first into these male-dominated territories. I was just one of many women at that time who took on that task in large and small communities across the nation. But I also knew it wasn't fair treatment, and I vowed to myself that whenever I had the opportunity to make an environment more inclusive, I would do just that. And that's what I set out to do as CEO of Carlson, creating a meritocracy through policies and initiatives that gave both men and women equal chances to succeed or fail. By, by then, I was very mindful that my actions as one of the few female CEOs we're helping to impact history in two ways. By helping to ensure our company's long-term competitiveness and by the impact it would have on women's equal rights. Within a few years, I'm proud to say that we did level the playing field with women in upper management reaching 49%. And today, we have a female CEO at Carlson. Today, with so much more data and more history on the value of diversity, We now know from empirical data that societies are more stable, economically stronger, children are healthier, better educated, and corporations earn greater returns when women partner alongside men in leadership roles in business, government, and the civil sector. But it must be said that, broadly speaking, gender equality is one of those things which is still unfinished business. History is still left for all of us, Right. So in packing my CEO chest, I also knew that I would need to pack the tools to innovate. I suspect that in your trunks, this would be one of your most prized possessions as well. I recognize how challenging it must be for many historical societies which depend on the always vulnerable public dollar and the unpredictability of private funding. So collaborations with other civic groups is certainly one avenue to expand your market, just as it was for us at Carlson. The History Center here did just that when recently it brought in popular musical ensemble to perform a concert featuring music from the 20s to coincide with its prohibition exhibit. History enthusiasts were augmented by music lovers. At Carlson, we call that other people's traffic. When we positioned TGI Friday's restaurants in airports, our guests didn't come to the airport to dine out. They were customers of the airlines, who we then capitalized on the fact that they were passing through. Another highly successful collaboration was forged between our History Center and the University of Minnesota's business school, the Carlson School of Management. And that collaboration resulted in a business plan for an education program that actually increased revenue by more than 200% in that fiscal year. I hope this is the kind of thing you've been sharing with each other, because these collaborations are absolutely the only way that we're going to move into the future and preserve the things we care about. At one time, our cruise business faced a similar situation to some of you who want your customers to come back and back to the same exhibit that you have had forever. So what did we do? Many of our passengers who'd been to Italy or been to France wanted to cruise again. They wanted us to have new new destinations, but logistically it wasn't possible for us to reposition the ships every year. So to expand our market and to have repeat business, we actually developed interest groups Themes. So even if you'd been to Italy and you'd seen the historic sites, we now could take you and you could be part of the music interest group, or you could be part of the arts interest group, so you could come, enjoy the cruise, and see it with new eyes, something which I know is something that you are doing, making everything old, new, and fresh again to respond to constantly changing market conditions. One market condition that I hadn't anticipated occurred on a beautiful blue sky September day 13 years ago while I was driving into our headquarters. Never did I think that people living in caves in Afghanistan could bring my global business to its knees. Thankfully, one of the first things I had packed in my CEO chest is what is known as the Carlson Credo, our corporate values. The credo goes like this. Whatever you do, do with integrity. Wherever you go, go as a leader. Whomever you serve, serve with caring. Whenever you dream, innovate. Dream with your all, and never, ever give up. The Credo was a guiding principle, and it quickly became a guiding principle for more than 175,000 hotel, restaurant, and travel employees around the world who were thrown into the chaos, dealing with closed skies, guests stranded in hotel rooms, travelers who needed to be fed, and dwindling food supplies coming into our TGI Fridays restaurants. We had taught the credo, building our culture, to employees all over the world before that day. We had taught it in French, Japanese, Spanish, Italian, Hindi. One of the most emotional moments of my career was meeting a large group of hotel employees in Beijing. When I walked into the room, they all stood up and recited recited the credo in Mandarin. So on 9-11, and the many days after that, all these people were told that they would have to make decisions. We didn't know if we'd be able to communicate, but as long as they lived by the credo, We would support whatever actions they felt they had to take to take care of our employees, to take care of our customers, to take care of their communities, and even to take care of our competitors' customers because we would have unique skills and some of our competitors had been in the tower. The actions of our employees reinforced for me two things as a leader. In this ever-increasingly connected world, we must work hard to build a common culture, one in which our people will make the right choices even when they're not being watched. Moments of crisis can be powerful history lessons, both those that impact us professionally and at times personally. If we're lucky, our individual journeys are long. So from time to time, it's probably prudent to review our own packing list to see if new data or new experiences or new beliefs require that we take out of our trunks some of our old ways of thinking. Communities too need to reassess as new facts disprove old customs. While thinking about a recent human rights issue in our community, I looked to history for inspiration. And I was reminded that in the 1940s, When former Vice President Hubert Humphrey was mayor of Minneapolis, sadly, our city was known as the anti-Semitism capital of the nation. A disgusted Hubert Humphrey told citizens, if we don't believe that all men are created equal, maybe we should just stop saying it. His lifelong conviction and his work as Vice President of the United States helped our country and the state of Minnesota to break down one barrier after another to inclusivity and inspired me on this issue that I felt I needed to take a stand on in our community. Isn't it interesting how blind we can be at any given moment to the actual gap between our ideals and our actions? At the History Center is an early copy perfect example, an early copy of the Minnesota Constitution, which sets out the rights and responsibilities of Minnesotans. What's interesting is that it's written in the Dakota Indian language for the tribes which, in actuality, didn't enjoy any of those protections and privileges. A gap? While our values, such as the Carlson Credo, are to be permanently packed in our trunks, we must be wary of beliefs. Beliefs being more temporal, more subject to change with new data and new insights, values being more enduring. It's an important distinction. After all, history tells us that at one time, many believed that slavery was no more than an economic exchange. Many believed that women didn't have the proper temperament to vote. Many believed that the races should be separated and marriage should occur only within the same faith. Many even believed at one time that left-handedness was the work of the devil. And then the time came when we no longer believed these things to be true. So we changed laws. We changed customs. We changed our beliefs and our values of equal rights and opportunity. Justice and fairness won the day. It's the historian who helps us discern between what is fact and what is fiction. No small change in the the internet age. Sometimes each of us has grand opportunities and other times more granular. But they are opportunities and part of our journey. In the end, our individual histories Our own bits and pieces will be recounted in personal ways through family stories, mementos, videos, and photos, and our collective legacy will be documented in history books, displayed in museums, and preserved at historical sites that tell the story of our time together. So we owe a great debt to you, the historians who are not only our link to the past, but an ever-present reminder that we are all living links between the past and the future and that we best pack carefully for that journey. And if we're lucky, our journey will be long. There's one last story I want to tell you about a tangible, actually a piece of fabric that has special meaning for me. It's hanging in my closet And it's not my Smith College graduation gown and it's not my wedding gown and it's not a designer gown. It's the pink and white striped uniform of a candy striper that hospital volunteers wear. Pinned to the uniform is a name tag which reads Juliet Nelson. The piece of apron is very precious to me. Let me tell you why. When my daughter, Juliet, was in her last year of high school, she, like the other students in her class, was asked to give a senior year speech. I'd like to read you an excerpt from her speech. And I quote, 18-year-old. Juliet. Life is always fragile. What if, just what if, something happened to you today? What would trouble you the most? An abrupt ending? Unfinished studies? Unplayed games? Unperformed dramas? No, I'm willing to bet it would be unsaid words, incomplete relationships, and unfulfilled promises. As you can see, Juliet had a very strong sense that she was on her own journey. At the end of her speech, she quoted a Greek poet, Kavafi, who wrote, When you start on your journey to Ithaca, then pray that the road is long, full of adventure, full of knowledge, that the summer mornings are many, seen with ports for the first time with such pleasure, and such joy. Always keep Ithaca fixed in your mind. To arrive there is your ultimate goal, but do not hurry the journey at all. Three months after Julia delivered this speech to her senior class, my husband and I dropped her off at Smith College. It was a, very, a day not unlike today Coolness in the air, fall colors everywhere, how thrilled she was to decorate her room, hang her new wardrobe in the closet, and introduce us to her dorm mates. And then a mere ten days later, we received a phone call informing us that our Juliet had been killed in a car crash. There isn't a day that passes that I don't yearn for Juliet's physical presence Of course, I have many, many precious memories that I replay often. But outside of photographs, those mostly reside in my heart and in my mind. But there's something very special about that candy striper uniform. I can see it, I can touch it, I can imagine her in it, and how very proud I was of her. Not just for volunteering her time, but for the person she was. Yes, the past is indeed the past, but this, this is tangible. It's a reminder that it also exists in the present. It says to me, Juliet was real. There is her name tag. There is her clothing. I didn't just dream this wonderful spirit called Juliet. She was indeed in this world. She had a young girl's dreams. She had the beauty of youth. She enriched others' lives. She so joyfully filled a space and time that was unique only to her. And here, here in this pink and white pinafore, is proof. It lives in this candy striper uniform. Just as those D-Day soldiers' buttons are proof The immigrants' overalls and trunks are proof. The tortilla, the selfies, the tweets, the Nellie's cake, they're all proof of the many journeys made real. In the end, we have much to be grateful to you for our historians. Certainly you make the past real and relevant in the present, and you illuminate the past to the future. You teach us that in the end, this journey we all share is really nothing more than a series of days and choices, and that these choices are ours for the making. Each of us is history in the making. Therefore, how we lead truly matters. What a gift you all give us. Thank you.
0: How do, you follow that? How do you follow that? I had a funny, it's not appropriate at this point. Marilyn, oh, she's le- she had to go to the airport. Um, can we give her another round of applause, please? Thank you. Talk about someone who gets it, huh? Um, I was told I had to remind you of a couple things, so I'm, g- I'm going to do those right now. I looked over at Aaron, I was like, can, Aaron, can you go follow this? And I saw it and I'm like, oh man, uh, sorry. That was awesome. Um, two floors down, free lunch. Nobody complains about that, right? The, meet- the membership lunch, we will gather back here in about 90 minutes or so for the meeting of the membership. And hopefully you will join us there. And other than that, thank you very much. Go enjoy food and time together.
3: Thank you. we two, three, four.